Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today we're covering the second movie that was made early on to cash in on the popularity of the Daleks. This one is Daleks Invasion Earth 2150, also starring Peter Cushing as the Doctor. We both hated the first movie, so what will we think of this one? I'm your host, and when the apocalypse comes, I'll definitely be out there selling rotten potatoes to starving people for a tidy profit. It's the American way. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who was unfortunately written out of this episode of the podcast. All right, see you later. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, even though we hated the first film, and it was critically panned, it actually made a lot of money. <laughs> so... So the production company immediately put the next one into production and they didn't want to mess with the magic. So they kept the same director and all the same people, except not some of the actors, the magic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the original Ian Ryan castle wasn't available. So they replaced him. And I didn't see anything about what was up with the original Barbara, but she didn't show up either. So we'll see if her replacement gets more screen time than she did. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering what the deal was because, uh, you know, they they weren't actual Ian and Barbara, but they yeah. they fit into what the movie was going for anyway. <laughs> yeah. And this story in the TV show was the first time they did outside location shooting. They did some pretty dramatic stuff, as you recall, like with, you know, the Daleks in Trafalgar Square and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And they also heavily, you know, the first movie was all on sets. And this one, they also relied heavily on location shooting. So we'll see how that compares. Peter Cushing, who played the doctor, was sick during the film. So he was actually written out of a number of scenes. I didn't notice. Yeah. So that's, well, I, I guess yeah. that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see as we get there. This movie cost more than the first one, and it made less in no small part because it had no publicity budget in the U.S., so nobody here went to see it. And also, it was critically panned. The first one was critically panned, but people went to see it. But this time, they seemed to pay attention to that. Personally, I also suspect that people had just recently seen a Doctor Who Daleks movie, so they didn't feel compelled to go and watch another one. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or they, it was just that they had seen the first movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally possible that, you know, people went to see it, but then realized it wasn't too good. So whatever reasons, people didn't go to see it. The plans for a third movie were scrapped after the poor results. And we had mentioned that the first movie managed to cover all the points of the original story just without the padding. But this movie doesn't. It just can't squeeze in everything. So it actually leaves a number of things out. So we'll see what we think of that. I think they could have fit a lot of stuff in that they didn't, but there were some places where they just sort of went in a completely mm-hmm. different direction than the show. Yeah, one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I may know what you're talking about. <laughs> is it right? It, the ending definitely is not a canon ending, I would say. Well, yeah, beginning and ending, as we'll see. But also, I'm thinking of the uh, kind of Marx Brothers whole sequence. <laughs> uh, well, I think there's a couple of those. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, well, let's head into the movie. Okay, well, we start off with, uh, they, they have a different theme this time, but it's very similar in as much as 
it's a very 60s theme it's 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 a little more jazzy and fast paced this time and it's sort of i described it as spy style lounge music it's uh you know it's got that lounge feel but it's also very uh you know up tempo very loud and brassy <laughs> and as the credits go on we get to see uh uh even even the title of the movie they do some uh, a little fancy graphic design with it. It sort of arches over the top of the screen. And then in the background, we get an effect similar to the opening credits of Doctor Who, which, you know, we've discussed before. Those were created by applying some sort of feedback to uh, the words Doctor Who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, visual. And they got some interesting swirly visual effects out of that. And here, uh, it looks like they might have used paint but the paint never mixes together so i'm not sure if it's like constantly going down a whirlpool so it gets sucked down before we get a chance to see any blending but it's like a couple different colors of paint blending together in a whirlpool and it's a it's a neat little effect it's uh different and yet it's uh sort of similar to the opening credits of the tv show so i'll give him a point for that <laughs> so we start off there's a guy Sitting in a car, it's late at night, he's sitting in a car across the street from a row of storefronts, uh, and he's watching, and there's a beat cop who's strolling by, and he stops at a travel agency to window shop, just <laughs> admire the pictures there, and the uh, the hula girl in the window, and uh, the cop is apparently not supposed to be there at this time because the guy gets out of the car and saps him, you know, <laughs> he falls to the ground. Right after that, the jewelry store next door suddenly has a big explosion, and there are men inside who flee to the car that this, this one guy was sitting in. Uh, that's their getaway car, and they all take off. I guess this uh, this all took a while, and I was literally kind of like, am I watching the right movie? <laughs> it's, it's very much not Doctor Who at this point, although I just realized while you were talking about it that, probably not intentionally, there is a bit of callback to the original show, the first episode, right, where it starts out with a cop uh, going through the junkyard. The very first episode of the series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you could. Uh, now, whether whether they did that consciously. I doubt uh, it. <laughs> I'd, I'd be skeptical, yeah. yeah. But it is, I don't think the people who made this knew much about Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the cop recovers, he he rushes over to the police box that's nearby, but of course it's not just any old police box. It turns out it's the TARDIS. He opens the door, sees a much larger room than he expects, and there are people in there staring at him, and he passes out. Yeah, and this, I'll give them, you know, I really complained about the TARDIS in the first movie, right? Which was, as I said, just <laughs> yeah, a gym the... floor and a square box and, you know, <laughs> bizarre stuff on the wall. This is much closer to the actual TARDIS. They still, for some reason, didn't go with the full TARDIS design. It, you know, sort of has a console, uh, but it looks much better. The weird thing to me, though, is that, uh, you know, so in the show the doors are part of the wall and are kind of exotic. And when they come out and everything, you know, they're not normal looking doors. Right. And here we just have normal looking doors. And it's just weird when you're inside the TARDIS to have what looks like a door to your kitchen or something. I guess it's to their credit that 
I didn't really notice the interior this time, whereas mm. you know in the first movie <laughs> it just stood out like a sore thumb. That's true. Uh, but this, this I just I can't even picture it now thinking back on it. Yeah, well, and like I said, that is definitely an improvement. (laughs) (laughs) So, Doctor Who is in there and Susan. Uh, This is the Susan from the first film, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Yeah, it is. She's a little older. Hopefully, she'll get a lot to do in this movie because she was the best part of the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Of course, uh, course she doesn't get the same ending that the Susan did in the... uh, yeah, that's uh, true. And the other one. <laughs> it would have been a little weird for him to leave behind like 10 year old Susan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might have been a little inappropriate. <laughs> so, this uh, this policeman, he uh, he's passed out and they've got to get out of there because, uh, you know, there was an explosion. People are alarmed. The police will be on the way. Yeah, there are other people are looking to use the police box to tell the police what happened. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the doctor says they'll just have to take him along with them. He looks at the scanner and he sees that a guy outside is coming towards the police box. He's going to try to call in the report. The guy gets distracted right before he enters the TARDIS, though. There's a guy on a bicycle passing by, and uh, uh, they make a little talk about what's going on. And when the vigilant citizen turns back, the police box is gone. And this guy, uh, he's kind of a, I don't know, I guess you could say he's kind of a Buddy Hackett type. Yeah. You know, he's sort of a comic actor looking guy. So he's about to go into the box, but he stumbles because the box is no longer there. He lands on his butt, and then he just, he gives the camera a look like, uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, he did some pretty <laughs> so, good acting there. Yeah, this is, this is th- there are a lot of bits in this movie that are, uh, I think, thrown in for kid appeal you know, yeah. i imagine this movie was probably marketed for kids again well although it's n- way more adult oriented than the first one right um yeah but the there's a lot of stuff in it that seems directed at kids right. so I, I don't know maybe it's just a weird uh <laughs> maybe they didn't know what the hell they were doing which right. is plausible yeah. Inside the TARDIS, uh, the cop wakes up and he looks around. Turns out his name is Tom Campbell, not Ian Chesterton. <laughs> uh, so they're not even going with any any mm-hmm. Ian-related things in here. This is just a whole new character for us. The doctor tells him that there's no phone. Uh, the Tom asks to use the phone. doctor says there isn't one, and if there were, it wouldn't do any good in... 2150 A.D., which is part of the title. As you might imagine, Tom is skeptical. And then we meet the new Barbara, who is not named Barbara. This is Doctor Who's niece, Louise. (laughs) That's completely a new one for those watchers of the show. Yeah, and they don't explain what happened to either Barbarian, you know, one thing, I was thinking, like, why didn't they just have the the new guy who's playing the Ian role just be a new Ian and not talk about it? But I think part of it that makes sense is that Ian was such a klutz, you know, this character and everything. And uh, uh, they, I think, who knows if they realized that was a mistake or not, but this guy's not a klutz. So he really has much more, something closer to the original Ian's personality. And it may be that they made right. him a new character just because they wanted to change how he acted. I'm just guessing. Um, but I would yeah. 
if I were them, I would have thrown in some line in here about how maybe Barbara and Ian went off and got married and were on their honeymoon or something. I mean, they just, it's just like, well, they, they're, uh, they're not here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't know if they expected the audience to remember that much about the first <laughs> movie. <laughs> don't know. So Tom scoffs at all this 2150 AD business. And he walks out the door of the TARDIS into a ruined London. And the set they use here, even even from what I can remember of the show, even sort of the initial camera angles are very similar. You know, there's like the, you got the TARDIS in a corner of some ruined walls and there's an archway next to it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it seems very similar to what I remember, like, although higher production values. It is. It's really close. They really did the same design, but they made two changes that I think define the difference between the show and the movie. You remember, you know, <laughs> I liked the TV show, uh, the t a story of this more than most people do. It was, it was the show as we talked about with Toby that got me wanting to watch all of classic Doctor Who. Mm. And two of the things that are really compelling in the beginning of the TV show of this story is the first thing we see is a sign um, underneath this, uh, you know, uh, roadway that says it's illegal to dump bodies into the water. Yeah, I remember you commenting on that way back when. Yeah, and that sign was really compelling, and it immediately told you a whole lot about this world, right? There's some weird stuff going on if people are dumping bodies in the water. And then we see this roboman who's suicidal, and he goes into the water and drowns himself. Right? So mm. that's the beginning of the TV show. What do we see in the movie? <laughs> Instead of it's illegal <laughs> to dump bodies into the water, we get a Sugar Puffs poster. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a story here because Sugar Puffs paid them for promotional placement. Well, that, that was a product. That's placement, a real product. Huh? And they I paid was wondering, for it. Because there are some Del Monte posters later on. Yeah, I don't know. I only heard the Sugar Puffs paid. And uh, there's speculation, at least in the making of stuff, that this may have been the first case of someone paying for placement in a movie. If you remember 2001, which you know wasn't that far out from here, 2001 paid the people that paid the companies that they put into their movie rather than the other way around. <laughs> huh. So yeah, things were a little different back then. It's interesting. Although I, I'd be surprised if it was what, this was 1966, right? I, yeah, I'd be right. surprised if that was the first film product placement because even, you know, since the, beginning of television you'd have product right. placements on tv you know the general mills something mm -hmm. or something hour yeah. you know well, that's a good point i think movies were different 2001 was 68 so 2001 was two years later and again like i said they paid the sponsors rather than the sponsors paying them so i, I just think this was kind of hmm. probably at the cusp of when that changed for movies at least could be well and it is but what yeah. you're saying it's really funny to watch early TV in those first few years and, you know, how the entire show would be the Chevron, you know, whatever. And then these Chevron <laughs> yeah. uh, gas pumping guys would come out and do a dance in the middle of the show. And that sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, let's say I, I would have rather had the uh, dumping bodies sign than the sugar puffs poster. That's all I'm saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that did uh, really set 
the tone of something's not right here just from the start. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I didn't put it in my notes, but they, they somewhere in this early part, they have a throwaway line that's amused me. It's, um, I think Susan said, says it actually when they're remarking uh, on how abandoned and quiet the place seems. Uh, Susan says, maybe it's Sunday. <laughs> and I, you know, it used to be like if you went to downtown Cleveland on a Sunday, there was nothing going on. You know, just, maybe it still is that way. I don't usually go there on a Sunday. <laughs> well, it but, still uh, gets hard to go to a breakfast place as I live in downtown Cleveland now. Although I was just talking to my sort of morning coffee shop waitress this morning and she, it, nobody was in the place but me and she gets really bored and she's like, yeah, no one's going to be coming in until April because, you know, it's cold and rainy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's your Cleveland update for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> There's cold and rainy is a reliable Cleveland update about two thirds of the time. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but I like cold and rainy, so that's fine for me. Anyway, little Susan, adorable little Susan, and uh, she is a cute kid. I got to give her yeah. credit. She's uh, I I didn't really notice her one way or another in the first movie. She was just sort of there, but this one's I'd warmed up to her a little. She's uh, she, I hope she I hope she went on to something bigger and better because uh, she she seemed all right. I saw an interview with her. Um, I haven't looked up her career, but I mean, you know, she seemed like a good person. But it's kind of funny you didn't really notice her in the first movie because she plays a major role in the first movie and. In this one, she doesn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. In fact, almost nobody plays a major role in this movie. So that's a comment I'm going to have. Yeah. It's really, um, well, I I won't give away too much at a time, <laughs> but well, let's proceed here. Susan uh, steps on a board, which ends up dislodging a big, heavy I-beam, uh, and it falls down towards her, uh, and Tom... Uh, with his policeman reflexes, rescues her as the nearby wall also collapses. So there's a lot of stuff falling down all over the place, and everybody's all right. Susan ends up getting a little twisted ankle or something, but not, nothing too bad. But because of all this debris falling down, now the door to the TARDIS is blocked by girders. And one thing I'll give the movie is it's it's a little more realistically blocked. If you remember in the TV show, they're like, well, we can't get back in there. And it's like, well, no, there's like one thing in front of it or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're convincingly heavy-looking girders. I'll give them that much. I think I'm going to be using that phrase a lot during this uh, movie. Uh, yeah, I'll give them that much. <laughs> so... The doctor and Tom go to look for tools, uh, a crowbar or whatever they can find to dislodge the TARDIS from its prison. Meanwhile, Louise and Susan are going to tend to Susan's injured ankle. Uh, and as the doctor and Tom are walking towards a nearby building, the doctor spouts a bunch of nonsense about uh, time being the fourth dimension and space the fifth dimension, which uh, it seems to me... Uh, a lot of guys would say space is the second, for, or first, second, and third dimensions. <laughs> but uh, I guess that's why he's the doctor and I'm yeah. just an ordinary chump. So they get into a warehouse, and there are stacks of cardboard boxes in there, and they're, they're apparently not filled with anything too terribly heavy because they fall over real easily. But between two stacks of these boxes, they, uh, they spot a black shoe sticking out into the aisle. Uh, so they think there's a guy standing there who's going to get him. 
But being on their guard, they push the boxes aside, and nobody springs out at him. Instead, a corpse falls over. And this guy is dressed like a motorcycle cop with a latex fetish. He's got this baggy black latex jumpsuit, and he's got a motorcycle cop helmet, and and he's got a clear plastic visor. And then underneath the plastic visor, there are mirrored sunglasses. So he's really, really going on. Yeah, if you remember, I mean, this is all directly out of the show. And, you know, this is our introduction to a Roboman, where, as I said in the show, our introduction was when a Roboman went and drowned himself in the river. And the Roboman in the show looked really bad. I think uh, the best thing about these is those sunglasses. I think those are pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. And there are a lot of scenes in this movie where the guys, they can't really adjust them because they're under the clear plastic visors so you'll see these robo men walking around with like the glasses on crooked and cockeyed and you know slid down their (laughs) nose a little bit and uh you know it's it's hard to adjust those glasses under the visor i think and that you'll see that a lot in the movie uh but overall i mean it is a more sinister outfit than what i recall from the show i mean that the black latex jumpsuit is, uh, you know, it's a little bit baggy, but uh, it is kind of sinister looking because it does. It, it looks a lot like a like a, an unusually severely dressed motorcycle cop. Yeah, one of the things I had a comment later we'll see is like they have a theme for these guys that they use every time they show us, <laughs> show them. I normally am not someone who notices themes like, oh, here's the love theme for this or here's this character's theme. But they use it a lot mm-hmm. in this. And it actually reminded me kind of a, of a Star Wars style theme, right? It's a sort of march. So every time you see the Robomen, you get this kind of, you know, military march thing. And it's pretty effective because it helps, you know, make them be uh, bad guys. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, I did notice they had some military marches here and there, but I didn't really connect them to being the, the Robo-Man theme. But you're mm. probably right about that. Almost certainly right, in fact. <laughs> so meanwhile, Louise is wetting a rag in the river. Uh, that's going to be for Susan's ankle, probably. And she hears some faraway gunshots, and she realizes now that she's lost track of Susan. She can't see her anywhere, and she starts calling for her. And suddenly a guy in a flat cap, a newsboy-style cap, uh, he pops up behind Louise, and he covers her mouth, and he tells her no, no noise. But he doesn't seem, after the initial shock, he doesn't seem hostile or nasty. He, uh, he, he's trying to keep her quiet so that whoever's making the gunfire doesn't head this way. And he, he leads her away, uh, and she's hoping to find Susan as he as he does so. Uh, back in the warehouse, the doctor, uh, or Doctor Who, as yeah, we in this know case, yeah, he's not the movie. doctor in this movie. <laughs> the doctor and Tom, they check out the motorcycle cop helmet, uh, and it's got a built-in radio, they see. They hear the gunfire that's going on outside, and they decide to head back and check on the ladies. Uh, But then there's a noise in the warehouse, so they turn back to check it out. Tom runs up some steps, 
He throws open a door, and it swings open onto empty space. It's a door to the outside with no steps or no fire escape, no nothing. So fortunately, again, with his police reflexes, he holds the doorknob, and he's able to hang there from the door, and the, the doctor helps him get back inside through the doorway. Uh, the doctor can see the TARDIS below, but, but he can't see the girls. Meanwhile, Louise and the new guy, the guy with the flat cap, they see a flying saucer, and this probably is about my favorite thing from the whole movie. <laughs> I, I really like the design of this saucer for some reason. It's like a very, very sporty flying saucer. It's, it's sort of a 60s, it, it's like a, it's like a 60s Jaguar flying saucer <laughs> right. almost. Well, it, it's a huge advance over the TV show where they literally had that kind of plates on a string thing where you could see the strings and everything. <laughs> and this actually looks rather like, you know, Ray Harryhausen did a movie called Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Never and he has some it. similar things in it, which is one of the, what's impressive about it, uh, especially for the time, is that on the top, it's rotating like with lights and stuff in one direction. And then there's a mm -hmm. layer right below that that's rotating in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a plate or something. It's not like that standard 60s, you know, uh, spaceship. It actually has a ship like, you know, it, it looks like an actual ship. I was going to say it's, it's like a flying saucer, but then if you added some bars on the side so it could have fins like a cool car. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, I looked it up, and, and Earth versus the Flying Saucers was almost a decade before this, so they may well have been influenced by that. Hmm. The other thing I'll say related to this is that they do, again, for the time and, and for the level of movie this is, they do a pretty good job with matte paintings and compositing. Like, you know, when we see the spaceship hmm. interacting with other environments and everything, it's all it all looks pretty good. Much better than, you know, the first film where when they, they only did a little bit of that and it was pretty obvious, like, oh, here's our painting. Yeah, they <laughs> had the, the big plane with the mountains while they were yeah. climbing up the pipes. And that was the only matte painting that I noticed in that one or I remember noticing. Um, but, of course, that's already fading in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the best. You know, uh, we watched the Hartnell movie, The Mouse That Roared, that would have been in, I don't remember what year it was, but, you know, not too far from here, certainly within five or ten years in one direction or the other. And remember the compositing, that was terrible. Like, you know, when they were supposed to be walking in downtown New York and there's just this screen behind them and, you know, it's, <laughs> you know and this is much better than that. So, Yeah, there are a few matte paintings I noticed in this movie that are, they are obviously matte paintings, uh, at least partially. There are, there are sections of them that you can tell, oh, that's a painting. But they still look quite good to me. Mm -hmm. So kudos to whoever did that. So while Louise and the new guy are, are noticing this saucer, I'll reveal now the new guy's name turns out to be Weiler, just so I can have <laughs> options when I'm referring to him. The doctor and Tom see the saucer also. And it seems to be landing not too far from where they all are. Weiler leads Louise into an underground station, the underground being the London subway. 
Yeah. I always love it when they walk by the thing that says, the sign that says way out, which is if you go to Britain, you know, they always say, it just cracks me up. And it's way out. <laughs> okay. Especially in the 60s. <laughs> well, yeah. 1966 was was the, the perfect time to have a way out sign. <laughs> uh, and we find out that another guy has led Susan here already. That's why Louise couldn't find her and had to call for her before. And Weiler, the first guy, he says he'll look for the doctor and Tom later, you know, once once the Susan and Louise have complained about their absence. So meanwhile, the doctor and Tom are looking around the area where the TARDIS is parked, hoping to find Louise and Susan. Back in the underground, this group meets a third guy in a denim jacket, and he'll become one of the larger characters later on uh, he has a name i kept i kept, I kept calling it's him david. the young guy yeah david yeah yeah oh that's right it was and, david in the show too but this guy yeah, doesn't uh, doesn't hit on susan in, <laughs> yeah in in the tv show he was he was the man who who stole the real susan from yeah. us so forever has my sworn enmity <laughs> so david says he had to kill a robo man earlier he was in the warehouse. Uh, he didn't know the doctor and Tom when they entered, so so he left without uh, drawing their attention, which uh, explains why there was that dead robo-man mm-hmm. standing there between the boxes, and also probably explains the noise that they heard as they were leaving that led to them nearly throwing Tom out a door and all mm-hmm. that. And David says that he will try to find them, so uh, he's a helpful guy. Uh, the doctor, meanwhile, he finds the rag that Louise was wetting, and he recognizes it. I think he says that it was something of Susan's. And he calls for Susan, and by this time, uh, David has managed to climb atop the ruins near them, and he yells a warning to them as two robomen approach. At the sound, the robomen turn and fire on David, uh, hey. blowing up part of the wall that he's concealed partly behind, but uh, but they don't get him. And he makes his getaway. Then we see something plowing through the river water. And uh, it looks like a little dome at first, but it starts rising out and we realize it's a Dalek. (laughs) And uh, this was the cliffhanger of the first episode. And we're only under 14 minutes into the movie, including the credits. So they... They did did a good amount of trimming on that part. uh, And I respect that. Yeah, one thing I'm critical of here, though, is that in the show, I think maybe they did have a cable and or the Dalek operator was having to cycle up a ramp under the water. But it, in the show, it appears very slowly and it's dramatic. Mm-hmm. Here, they just clearly have a cable on this thing and they're like pulling it at 20 miles an hour. So there's no there's no oh, like yeah, dramatic it's, monster entrance. It's, just, it's like it, water skiing. It, it, <laughs> yeah, they don't really play it up like the cliffhanger they did in the TV show. And after he's risen most of the way out of the water, he just sort of bobs back and forth. <laughs> so, so, yeah, they did it better in the TV show, I think. The Dalek tells the Robo-Men to take the prisoners to the spaceship. And the Daleks are now searching for the denim jacket guy, the human that got away. And then we see a view of an interior, what looks like a cramped sweatshop, you know, like your stereotypical... TV show where they've got a little, uh, you know, heroin assembly operation going on or something. It's kind of like that, except here they're making armaments or cleaning armaments, doing stuff with armaments, guns and bombs and whatnot. 
And the two guys arrive with Louise and Susan, just in time to hear a public address broadcast from the Daleks. They're, uh, uh, I'm not sure if they're coming through on a radio or if they're just loud enough that they can be yeah, heard. They have a the radio there because you station. see them like adjust the radio and stuff. So, okay. Well, they're making a PA broadcast, uh, and the bottom line is volunteer to work for the Daleks or be exterminated. <laughs> at least they have which a choice. Is usually their deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. At least you, you get the work option. It's not <laughs> direct extermination. Although, the way the Daleks seem to pan out, uh, you know, sooner or later they're going to get around to the exterminating. <laughs> the guy in the wheelchair who was rolling around inspecting things, uh, he has a plan. Uh, and and he, he sasses back to the radio. He picks up this short little tube with fins on it like the bottom part of a rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, we'll show them. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like uh, one of the flaws of the movie is that you know, the show having so many episodes and so much time had a bunch of different story threads. And one of them was this guy's story arc, and he got several more scenes in the show, and it was an important story arc, right? The whole idea of he had developed these bombs and was trying to get them to work and, you know, what happens a lot. And mm-hmm. that story arc is here, but because they take out, like, three different scenes with him, you barely even know who he is in the movie. And my argument would be pick two or three things that you want to develop from the show and leave out the rest so that you have time to do them. Don't do half a dozen where you take out key scenes. So basically one of the things I criticize about this movie is there's really no lead actor. There's really almost nobody except the doctor a little bit at the end who makes an impact. Like it's just a, you know, they, they've sucked the life out of a bunch of the different storylines and they didn't choose (laughs) two or three and just go with them, you know? Yeah, I mean, arguably, Tom has a lot of good moments throughout oh, yeah. the thing. But, I, I, uh, I would, but yeah, no, you're right. He he is like the main character in this whole show, and uh, you know, I I actually think that if he had played Ian in the first one with, as this character, you know, it would have been much more Doctor Who like, right? <laughs> it would have been an improvement, you know, if they if they just if they just followed the Doctor Who lore, it would have been. <laughs> more Doctor Who like. I mean, they they just arbitrarily changed things they didn't need to change. Yeah, it, it seems. But oh well, I, I've already complained about that in a whole other episode. Well, and I, I think you <laughs> see them trying to correct that here, right, by bringing him in and Lillian, who's more like Barbara, even though we see about thirty seconds of her in well, the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they correct it to the extent that he's not a. Constant stumble bum. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. But uh yeah, they they still I mean just just by not going with the show's cast, I think uh that was really their first flaw is that's what people were used to. Give them what they <laughs> want. Right. Oh well. Anyways, Susan and Louise, they want to leave the sweatshop and look for Doctor Who. I'm pointedly saying Doctor Who here because that's how Peter Cushing introduced Mm -hmm. himself. Louise asks the wheelchair guy what's going on. The wheelchair guy is named Dortman. And in the TV show, from what I remember, they they really, people seem to revere him. He was like Mm -hmm. the genius doctor. In this, they don't, like you said, they don't play it up as much. He's just just sort of like the boss. You you wouldn't even know that he's important, you know, yeah. Yeah. 
Louise asks him what's going on. He says the Daleks are mining. Perhaps they may be even mining all the way to the Earth's core. I don't know exactly how he figured that out, but uh, but he's done so, done his research anyway. And the Daleks, it turns out, have killed a lot of people on Earth. They've turned other people into robo-men. You know, they sent meteorites down. There were plagues. I mean, the Daleks have just really screwed up the place. And uh, the flat cab guy, Weiler, he seems a little skeptical of the wheelchair guy's optimism. Despite everything that's happened, uh, the wheelchair guy, Dortmund, he, he's really going to give the Daleks what for with these bombs of his. And Weiler seems not so convinced. But then uh, David returns, uh, and he pauses here to read, and I think this might be an attempt to capture something of the body dumping notice that you mentioned mm-hmm. that, that came real early on in the show. But there's a, a warning on the door in the underground about boiling your rainwater. You know, be sure to boil it and get the disease out of it and all that. So it's a little bit of setting the dismal tone of the... Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they, because it's almost, it looks like that same poster and everything. So I think this is where they tried to bring that back. It doesn't work as well for I mean, it would have been perfect in coordination with having the dumping bodies poster, right? Um, oh, yeah. You know, so I, I don't yeah. think it replaces it, but I agree. I think they were trying to recover here because I don't think that was in the TV show. I don't recall it, but then again, it's been a while. Hmm. So. And another reason for his attention to this sign is that. One of the letter O's conceals a doorbell, which he presses, and he's allowed into the sweatshop. And he reports that the doctor and Tom were captured. And now we see the parked saucer. And this is one of those nice matte paintings that we were talking about. It's uh, I think maybe it was the upper left corner. is kind of obviously a painting, but most of the rest of it looks uh, darn near photorealistic. One of the things that, even for the TV show stuff, you know, watching the behind the scenes, it kind of amazes me about how they, they did stuff was, like, we saw the Aztecs, right? And they had these, uh, basically these fabrics in the background that they had a, the, you know, the horizon was painted onto, right? And mm-hmm. how that would work is they would literally, just a painter would come in, you know, the day before or whatever, and paint that stuff on it. And then when the episode had been, you know, was done, that would be sent in and it would be painted over, you know? So these guys did all this work and then it would just be the next day. Or even I was, there's a great uh, background thing where it was just a show about how the, the BBC did their TV shows. And so they would, let's say they had Zed cars, you know, which is a famous show we, we've talked about before, which is a police show. They would paint the floor so whatever, you know, tile or whatever you're seeing was all painted. And then they would shoot the episode. And then that night, late at night, like at midnight, some guy would come along with a um, a special, you know, uh, water-based thing that would, that would suck up all the paint on the floor. <laughs> and then they would paint a new hmm. floor for whatever show was going to be shown the next day. And then, of course, the next uh-huh. week they would do this all again. And it's just, it's just kind of amazing to me that you would have people doing all this work to paint a floor or paint a background or whatever. And then, you know, well, tomorrow it's gone and we do the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like those uh, sand mandalas that the, the Buddhist yeah, monks yeah. make. Yeah. 
So at the saucer, the doctor and Tom are being marched along with a good-sized group of other humans. I'm thinking maybe eight or ten of them all in all. And the doctor explains that he saw the Daleks destroyed, you know, referring to the first movie. But he says perhaps that was sometime in the future. And he's observed that these Daleks, unlike the ones he met before, these don't need an electric network of bumper cars. They just their suits move under their own power now. Yeah. I think this is one of those hanging a lantern on it, right? Because it doesn't really make sense, and he's basically pointing out that it doesn't make sense, and then he doesn't have a solution. They just move on. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, if they took the trouble to invade Earth, you'd figure they had to have some kind of extended mobility at right. some point. Well, which says that he, you know, yeah, that he didn't see them destroyed, who knows. So, yeah, it's it's a conundrum. <laughs> so two of the prisoners, it turns out that they killed two robo-men. And uh, uh, so they're going to be made into robo-men to replace the ones they killed. And one of them thinks he's pretty clever, and uh, he he more or less says to the other guy, watch this, uh, and uh, he tries to run, and long story short, he gets himself fire <laughs> extinguished. The, uh, the Daleks are still using these awful fire extinguisher weapons in lieu of the negative photography weapon. Yeah, it's pretty undramatic. But, you know, I'll say he did a pretty good job because he actually, like, climbs up the side of a building and runs along, and then he falls through an awning, and it's a really serious fall. And I, Yeah, I, I was thinking that was a good stunt. Yeah, and I, I think I saw in the background material that he broke his ankle or something, which you can totally believe oh. watching it. But, I, but if he did, he did that Tom Cruise-like thing where he got up and finished the shot. Right. He didn't mm-hmm. just like fall down and stay there. So, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty serious fall. Oh yeah. So I guess, I guess uh, if you, if you like stunt action, uh, and who doesn't, then, mm. uh, that, that's a high point of the movie. Mm. The Daleks lead the remaining prisoners into the saucer. You know, it's, it's got your classic saucer ramp leading up <laughs> into it. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of action takes place on the ramp through the movie, or or at least some action does. Back in the sweatshop, meanwhile, uh, David, the denim guy, says the prisoners are going to be taken to the mine. That's probably related to Dortmund's knowledge of the the mine, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe maybe he learned it from Dortmund, whatever research he had done. Who knows? We don't... A lot of details we don't know, and we don't really need to know. Uh, You know, you can't overanalyze this stuff. <laughs> Back at the saucers, the Daleks are sending their prisoners into cells by threes. Groups of three go into each different cell. And finally, after they've got the last group of three in the cell, and that last group happens to be the doctor and his companions, they give a real loud order to all Daleks return to central control. So Doctor Who, (laughs) the Doctor, thinks Mm -hmm. that they can escape now because the Daleks are leaving. They're going to central control. So the Doctor is looking for something non-conductive. And Tom gives him a comb, which is indeed non-conductive. I mean, you wouldn't expect a comb to conduct electricity. But the Doctor is hoping to block a magnetic field with it. And I don't think that's quite (laughs) the same proposition. Mm Mm-hmm. But he slides it under the door, and the magnetic bond that's holding the door to the floor is broken by this uh, standard pocket comb. And they get out. But 
Right outside the door, the Daleks are waiting. And it turns out this was an intelligence test. <laughs> uh, but it's the bad kind of intelligence test where if you're too smart, you end up turning into a robot. <laughs> so that's the plan. These are going to be new, new Robo-Men recruits. Back in the sweatshop, there's another broadcast. The Daleks have issued a final ultimatum. Come out and work for the Daleks, because we're going to destroy London, and if you're not working for us, you'll be destroyed along with it. So they decide that this is the time to try out these newfangled bombs they've been working on. Dortman loads up a backpack with the bombs. David and Weiler, especially Weiler, they're skeptical about uh, whether this is the right time to go through with the plan, but then, then David tries on a captured Roboman helmet, uh, and all three of them start laughing. They're, they're having a diabolical mastermind moment here. Back at the saucer, we see a group of three people. They're, they're trapped in these, they're standing upright in these things against the wall. They're, they have little metal bands around their waists to keep them snugly captured in there. And they've just finished being robotized. <laughs> Uh, they come out and they tell the Daleks we obey without question. And as they leave the room, the next three candidates are let in, and that's Doctor Who and his companions. <laughs> so they get strapped in. You know, the metal metal bars come into place, and hair dryers come down. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the the hair dryers have made more than one appearance in Doctor Who, and it's standard robotizing stuff. Yeah, and I don't know if these hair dryers came before the Web Planet hair dryer, but anyway, <laughs> the hair dryer played a major part in the Web Planet. <laughs> oh yeah, and David uh, now in his baggy latex uniform, uh, imitating a Robo Man uh, with helmet and everything, uh, he's leading some so-called prisoners to the saucer, and the Dalek guard lets them pass. They're going up the ramp into the saucer, and he tells another guard that the prisoners are from Sector 4, and now the Dalek is suspicious because they have no patrols there. That's one thing I, I have to give both of these movies. They, uh, they really do continue the TV show's tradition of not making the Daleks slouches most of the time you know they they're on top of things usually mm -hmm. and if something goes wrong they usually have a backup plan and you know so forth and so on so, uh that part uh, has come over very nicely from the uh, from the show but when the dalek gets suspicious they do something that he wasn't ready for they grab him and Push him down the ramp. He goes skidding down there. When he gets to the bottom, he topples over <laughs> and instantly blows up. <laughs> it's a pretty dramatic shot, but I was thinking it's kind of a design flaw or, you know, a warranty problem to oh, yeah. blow up as soon as you tip over. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Like in the first movie, you know, they, they pushed one of them into the wall and he blew up. I mean, just <laughs> they, they, these guys are, uh, yeah, they're paper tigers when it comes to the, the armor suits anyway. When they're relying on their minds, they're doing all right. But uh, when they're relying on the suits, it's a, it's a crapshoot there. Mm -hmm. So the Daleks sound an alert, and the humans start tossing their bombs. And the bombs work against Roboman real well. So there's that. <laughs> but in the robotizing room, these Daleks aren't going to respond to the summons, you know, the general alert. 
they're going to proceed with the robotizing. The rebels burst in and they fight with the Daleks, you know, spin them around and do all kinds of uh, guerrilla tricks to them. And uh, they release the doctor and Tom, but the third guy is stuck. You know, these metal bars around the waist, they're like when you get on a ride at the amusement park, you know, and you got to put the bar over yourself to make sure you don't go flying. It's like that kind of thing. And he's stuck in there. They can't move the bars. Uh, so Weiler finally says, leave him. And it's just as well, because by now he's fully robotized. Yeah, and it's it's not obvious, but he will come back later. In the TV show, again, there was a a little story arc that kind of gets lost here, where this guy was another guy's brother, and they end up having a confrontation later. And yeah, that's something I did notice in the uh, in in the half that you'll be covering mm-hmm. is um, that was one of the more interesting moments of the show for me, and I thought it was kind of a pity that that ends up getting left out. Yeah, and the weird thing is, it's almost like they didn't they they half left it out and half didn't because we don't know this guy's name, and they refer to him by name later. But we don't know who he is because they never referred to him by name before. So it, none of it makes sense. And you don't have the brother thing. So it's almost like, you know, they they just didn't realize that they had started it or not started it or whatever. I don't know. It's just a weird script thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't make the connection that the guy from this scene was also the guy in that scene. But, uh, yeah, it's probably what they they probably had an original script that was closer and maybe maybe during the edits for some reason yeah. they switched it around but but it seems like a, a curious thing to lose because because it would have been a, it was a scene that really had some drama and heart mm-hmm. to it you know and in what's mostly just a you know cheesy science fiction show <laughs> <laughs> so no oh well Anyway, back in the uh, battle on the saucer, uh, Louise is there, and she's she's found a casualty. Maybe he's still breathing, or maybe she doesn't know, and she's just trying to get him to safety in case he's alive. She tries dragging him. He's too heavy, and the robo-men are coming, so she finds a, a closet to hide in. And the closet's full of robo-gear, so I, I thought that she was just going to put on a helmet and a suit and you know try and pull off a little subterfuge but that turns out to be not what she does yeah, it's a little weird because they, they just spent time on this thing that you know didn't do anything you know yeah yeah i guess uh they're subverting expectations that's what it was <laughs> <laughs> it's a clever movie maker trick outside the closet the rebels are throwing bombs at the robo men and tom's running around the saucer looking for louise and uh i think now is he I can't remember. Is he dressed as a Robo Man at this point? He might have the baggy suit on at this point. Yeah, I think. He, sure. Yeah, I don't think he has the helmet, but he has the suit on. You. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I guess you already mentioned the marching music, but this uh, this whole combat section in the saucer, this is really where I noticed a lot of it. And this is a pretty long sequence. You know, yes. we're going back and forth, and Robo Men are marching around, and et cetera, and it's probably one of the more effective sequences in the movie. I mean, it is pretty intense and it is driven by this music and, you know, um, so I thought they did a pretty good job here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all right. I mean, it's not like the, uh, the Imperial March, you know, the dun, 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 uh, it's not that catchy. (laughs) I mean, I, 
I I remember I saw I think it was the Empire Strikes Back that the, that was introduced in, mm-hmm. and after I saw that movie for the first time, I I remembered that theme. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't I didn't need to hear it after that to remember the tune. It was just one of those earworms that sticks mm-hmm. in your head, you know. And I cannot hum the marching music from. Ed Dalek's Invasion of Earth 2150 AD. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that kind of music, though, is so important more, more than, you know, again, I don't tend to notice the music in a movie, but I've seen, you know, people do clips on YouTube or, or whatever where you watch one of those scenes that's using, say, the Imperial March, and then you take the music away and watch the scene, and it has a completely different feel, right? I mean, the music oh, totally sure. sets the feel of it. Oh, yeah. If, if music's done well in a movie, uh, it really adds uh, a lot. Yeah, and uh, and it adds it adds something here. It's just I, I was just being snarky because it's <laughs> it's not as catchy as Darth Vader's theme. <laughs> so there are some rebels leaving the saucer. They're going down the big entrance ramp, and they meet a group of robot men coming up, and uh, one of them does this goofy karate yell and jumps up in the air and i think he knocks down two of them simultaneously it's just uh it's kind of ludicrous but also fun to see so i'm (laughs) I'm not going to complain too much i'll make fun of it but i won't complain the daleks pursue with their fire extinguisher guns and it turns out that these bombs that were supposed to be the secret weapon against the daleks they're utterly useless against the daleks against robomen they're fine against daleks they don't do a damn thing. So of the group of people who've come to invade the saucer and who are now trying to escape the saucer because the bombs don't work, Weiler manages to get away. The others, the Daleks get just about all of them, maybe even all of them. In fact, I think it is all of them because we never, at least we never see any of them return to the uh, sweatshop. Meanwhile, uh, the Doctor and David are in an alley trying to get out of the area and groups of Daleks appear at either end of the alley. Fortunately though, there's a manhole cover. So they head down that and they make their escape near the saucer. Weiler is hiding in the shadows. He hasn't managed to get very far from the saucer in the saucer. Tom is sneaking around. He's got a robo man helmet. So now he's got the full uniform helmet and jumpsuit. And he blends in with a group of them, and we get, I think this is probably like a good three or four minutes of uh, comical <laughs> hijinks where he's trying to blend in with the Robo-Ben and coordinate his movements. You know, they, they all, when they're doing things, they're all very coordinated, very much in lockstep. And so so it's that. It's that comedy. Right. They turn left and he turns right, or he looks around and then turns left. Or, right, or they all right. grab a plate uh, from this uh, food dispenser and sit down, and they you know pick up <laughs> each <laughs> piece of food at the same time, and he's trying to coordinate with them. And the weird thing to me is, actually, this whole sequence is actually really well done. They they're very clearly the you know they choreographed it. These people practiced. The movements are all in sync. It is funny. It's just why are we spending three minutes, five minutes, however long this is, when we could have had these, you know, scenes that would have fleshed out the story, but instead we just have this Marx Brothers sequence. It's it's just kind of weird. You know? Oh, yeah. I I think this is 
more evidence in favor of my theory that this was at least partly targeted towards kids. You know, yeah, I mean, right. you got to give the kids something. I mean, some kids are going to appreciate all the fight scenes yeah. and whatnot, but then, you know, there's going to be kids who just want a good comedy sequence. So, <laughs> or any comedy sequence because they're kids. So, I think this is this is a sop for the kids, in my right. opinion. And, and like I said, at least it was pretty well done. If it had not been well done, this would be excruciating. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was well done for something for the kids, but I mean, <laughs> for me, it was kind of excruciating. <laughs> excruciating is too strong a word. It was more like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, move it along. <laughs> And it is worth mentioning this machine that dispenses the, uh, it dispenses paper plates with, you know, the classic science fiction trope of nutrition pills. You know, they get a whole plate full of multicolored pills. Um, so partly because I don't remember this being in the show. Uh, and I mean, you know, anything about these nutrition pills. Right. And also the machine does come back a bit later for another comedy bit. So. Uh, it's worth keeping in mind. Back in the sweatshop, uh, the only people who didn't go out on this expedition, apparently, are Susan and Dortmund. Uh, they're alone in there. Weiler returns. He's also alone. No one else has returned yet. You know, Dortmund is still optimistic. or the first. <laughs> but, yeah, we'll see how that works out. Um Weiler says the doctor's with David, and he reveals the bombs were no good. And I I don't remember a lot of details about the show, but I think this was more... This this really hurt Dortmund in the show, I think, if I'm mm -hmm. remembering yeah. right. Well, it was I his mean, life's he was work, really, right? Yeah. yeah, he was really optimistic. They were going to defeat the invaders and... Uh, and the bombs just turned out to be utterly useless. And uh, uh, I don't think, I, I think the show played up the disappointment of that a lot more. So now that the bombs have turned out to be no good, they plan to flee to the countryside. And we see Susan starting to chalk a message for her grandfather. Uh, we, we see her write it grand uh, on the back of the entrance door, which uh, is not perhaps the best place she could have chalked a message. <laughs> yeah, as we'll see, yeah. Yeah. We see a scene of a Dalek patrol passing by in a city street, and then the doctor and David emerge from a manhole. I'm not, I don't think it's the same manhole they went down, but it's, it's somewhere in the city. Yeah, I was amused to notice during this whole thing, there's a large hair at the bottom of the lens. <laughs> I guess they didn't <laughs> notice it, and it wasn't worth reshooting. And even though they did, um, <laughs> you know, they reconstructed this, or, you know, they, they refreshed it, uh, uh, and I'm surprised they didn't get rid of the hair there. But anyway, that just amused me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a scene with Daleks in a manhole cover. It would have been tremendous, tremendously expensive to recreate that scene. <laughs> on the saucer, Tom is still sitting on the benches with the Robo-Men, uh, basking in the afterglow of their delicious meal <laughs> of pills. Uh, but he seems to have nodded off. He's just sort of... I think that's what he's doing. Maybe he's despairing or something but it looks like he just fell yeah, no, asleep. I think he's asleep he's, yeah. he's not paying attention he has his head to on the shoulder of one of the other guys yeah. <laughs> and they all stand up 
and they get back in their formation. You know, dinner's over, got to get back to work. So he notices and he rushes to go back and get a place in their, in their formation. Meanwhile, Louise wakes up on the floor. She's apparently still in the closet. Tom now decides to leave the formation and just run the other way. He takes off his helmet, and it's not clear why he does any of this stuff, but uh, suddenly he breaks formation, gets far enough away from the robo men that they can't see him, and then takes off his helmet. And he goes back to the mess hall that they were just leaving. I'm calling it mess hall for mm. lack of a better term. It's benches next to a pill machine, basically. He runs into Louise there. They're reunited now, but her coat catches on a lever of the pill machine, and the pill dispenser runs amuck. So it's kind of like the old I Love Lucy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, factory scene. Yeah, because they're like scooping up the plates while they're coming out. Like it doesn't even, I mean, it's totally a takeoff on the Lucy. Oh, geez. I just saw it. I just saw that you had a note about that. I honestly <laughs> did not read your note before I said that. So it's okay. Great minds but think alike. Right? It also, <laughs> unlike that one where Lucy had a reason to try and you know keep things working on the on the assembly line, there they don't. I mean, it doesn't matter if these plates go on the floor, but for some reason, you know, Tom is really concerned with collecting up all the plates and keeping them from going on the floor. So. <laughs> yeah, and they. Uh, they send pills, the, all these pills they've collected, they send them down this vacuum disposal chute. And it's it's strong. It's got a strong vacuum. It sucks them all in, you know, kind of dramatic. But this, the purpose of this scene is, is to introduce us to this chute because mm-hmm. it'll end up playing an important role soon. The doctor and David finally return to the sweatshop, which is by now abandoned. The doctor reads Dortmund's notes, the wheelchair guy, the guy who designed the bombs that tragically didn't work. And he finds that the Dortmund had, had circled the mine on the map. This is the mine where all the prisoners are being taken to. Um, and the doctor says, well, that's obviously an important place. I'm going to go there. And David says he'll go along too. They leave. And never once do they notice Susan's note on the back of the door. Um, you'd think they might notice it when they turned to leave, but somehow David, it's, it's one of those mechanical science fiction sliding doors, mm-hmm. and it opens up when they go to leave before they get a chance to notice anything about it. Of course, it, it is a nice shot when they walk out, then the door closes, and we, our last shot is of the note <laughs> that they didn't see. So. Yeah, yeah, the door, doors close, and then we see the full text of the message that they were going to Watford. David and the doctor get outside just in time to see the saucer taking off, and it's still a really neat-looking saucer. <laughs> but now we see uh, it's VTOL jets, and there are these mm-hmm. four tiny little flames, and it's kind of uh, <laughs> you know, underwhelming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I guess those are just augmenting the anti-gravity engines or something. (laughs) Can't look at the superficial surface appearances. In the saucer, Tom and Louise are hiding, and uh, she speculates about escaping through the disposal chute once they land. And uh, all I can say about that is it's... You know, it, it could be a very good plan, but all I can picture is just there being a big chipper shredder yep. at the bottom of the disposal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyway, that's the first half of the show, and uh, 
What a first half it was. <laughs> so as we go into the second half of the movie, Susan and the wheelchair guy, Dortmund and Weiler are in a garage with a cool red truck. It's, I think it's a very British truck, right? It's kind of a <laughs> short truck. Uh, you know, in America, we don't have short trucks. <laughs> we have big trucks. <laughs> in Britain, <laughs> I think they have these kind of little, and it's kind of a stubby truck. It's cute. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a van, I think. Yeah. It's uh yeah, but but it's got a neat grill on it, sort of an Art Deco, you know, '40s style grill, uh, which is nice to know that in the AD twenty one fifty, they've still got some nice design. <laughs> And a return to nice design. Here they both <laughs> follow the show, but they cut out some stuff that I thought was really good in the show. The kind of stuff I would have rather had than the Marx Brothers routine, which is in the show, there was this other woman who was a rebel and she got mad at Barbara because Barbara was kind of, you know, kind of an elite, not understanding things. And she lectured her about what it's like to, live through this kind of thing and be a rebel and everything. And she was a really strong and interesting character. Mm -hmm. And she's just not here at all. And Barbara's not here. And Lil, you know, Lillian, Barbara's replacement is not here. She's not part of this. She had a really cool scene in here that gets taken by Weiler instead, which is he draw, you know, they open the garage doors and they start to take the truck out. And then Dortmund's in his wheelchair, spots a Dalek and he heads towards it. Now, in the TV show, it was really obvious what he's doing. And I think it's here in the movie, but it's not as obvious where he feels bad that he's being told that his bombs didn't work. And he's going to go prove either they do work or he's going to sacrifice himself in the process of proving it. Mm -hmm. And it's just much more obvious in the TV show than it is here, where it just looks like he's just going off to, you know, go after these Daleks. I didn't remember that detail, but but I think earlier when I was talking about how I thought the show played up the drama of the failing bombs more, I I think maybe subconsciously I sort of remembered something about that. Because here, yeah, it's, it just comes out of nowhere. Mm. So he goes off to, you know, throw his bombs at the Daleks that he sees, and he throws them, and, they, and he throws one, and it doesn't do anything, which kind of confirms that, you know, kind of his life work has failed, right? Because he thought this was going to save them all. Now, the weird thing yeah. about the bombs not working on the Daleks is, so what he does then is he has a bag of these bombs, and he, instead of throwing them at the Daleks, he throws it up on the roof of the building nearby, and it collapses the entire building onto the Daleks and onto him and kills him. So if these bombs could blow up a building, <laughs> I think they could have done something yeah. to the Daleks. <laughs> you would think so. I mean, you push them into a wall and they explode in flames. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you'd think... The, there's yeah, something just, maybe it's if he had just the invented, bombs were too clever or if he had just invented a device that would tip them over because <laughs> then they <it's> explode <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> like a little Roomba or something <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those baseball pitching machines yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he dies in a very dramatic scene where we see kind of his hand you know on his on his wheelchair and rotating the wheel and uh, that's a tragedy uh, but yeah, you know, yeah. Weiler and Susan got to move on. So Weiler is driving the truck and this is where Barbara was driving the truck in the show and mm -hmm. they see a bunch of Daleks and you know, he floors it and drives through them and it's okay. It's fine in the movie. I actually thought it was done better in the show and in particular was great because Barbara was having a lot of agency, right? By doing this 
And we lose that here because it's just a random guy um, who's not part mm. of the show who does it instead of Barbara or Susan or anybody, right? And then, uh, and this is uh, this is one where the it's the show did the same thing, but the movie mm. is definitely better. Which is a Dalek broadcasts a message to the spaceship saying, "Hey, here's this truck that's annoying us. Uh, you need to destroy it." So the spaceship uh, tracks it down, and you know it's preparing to annihilate it. And Susan notices the ship out the window, and so they park the truck and run into the woods. And the spaceship descends and fires this red bolt that engulfs the truck in flames. And that's all you know, especially in terms of special effects, uh, massively better than it was in the in the TV show. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that I don't think I thought about before, but it in a lot of shows, like you'd have the spaceship just go way out of its way to take out this truck. But the way that this is set up, the truck knows that they're taking prisoners to the mine and they're headed in that direction. So it's not like the ship has to wildly divert <laughs> from its course. Mm. So it makes sense for the ship. So that's actually, you know, that's a point in the plot's favor. Uh, just both the show and the movie, I guess. But right. it didn't occur to me before. So that's kind of neat. And we now see the doctor in the woods with uh, David, the young guy. And he's looking at a map and he says they're going to have to bypass Watford as it's full of Daleks. And, of course, what he doesn't know that we know is that Susan was planning to meet him in Watford, so this is an unfortunate change. (laughs) And uh, the Doctor and David head into the woods, and the Doctor says it's about three miles. And then two Robo-men on a bridge challenge them. And it's kind of funny because David spins around, he has a rifle, but before he shoots, one of them falls over. So I guess he just had really bad balance. And then and then David shoots and the other guy falls over. But, you know, I think because this is all done in real time and, you know, there's no special effects here or anything, it's that David was supposed to shoot twice, but he just didn't manage to. But, you know, you're the stunt guy and you got to fall over at this point. So that's what you do. Right? So. Yeah, there there was an old episode. Did you ever watch uh, Mystery Science Theater mm-hmm. 3000? Three, mm-hmm. Well, they, they had one. Uh, I think it might have been the Manos, The Hands of Fate. You know, it was a classic uh, episode of that show where they, uh, they one of their interstitial bits they did between movie segments was uh, they were talking about all the flaws in the movie, and they said, they just didn't care. <laughs> they were like repeating that over and over again. They give an example, and then they just didn't care. <laughs> this sounds like it could qualify for. Well, yeah, uh, and I think the deal is right. I mean, it could take you an hour to reset all this, right? So, okay, the guy only shot once. We're not going to spend an hour and a bunch of the production time and et cetera, so that he can shoot twice, right? Now, now, what you would do today. <laughs> is you would just CGI, you know, smoke that showed that he shot twice, right? So you would just fix it oh, sure. in post. There, there's various ways you could fix that, though. If they, they, they could have done something, but they just didn't care. <laughs> and one of the things you could have done, I guess, even though you wouldn't have seen the smoke, is you could just put in the sound effect of an extra shot, and it might have, you know. Oh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it might have just made you feel like there were two shots, even though you only saw one. Right? So. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're you're learning the Hollywood tricks here. Yeah. 
So uh, now back of the spaceship, the spaceship lands and Lillian and Tom are in a room in the spaceship and they realize it landed. And this is something I, I don't totally understand I'm thinking about because I noticed that there's a couple of points where we've seen Lillian and Tom in this room in the spaceship, but it just feels like they're in a room in a building somewhere. It doesn't feel like the spaceship where most movies and well, even the TV show, it's, you know, it's the walls of the room that they're in. Uh, you know, that last scene that I was talking about, uh, it looks like they're in a room with almost like stucco walls, you mm. know, some kind of textured walls that are totally out of place in a Dalek flying right. saucer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that's true. Yeah. And it's one of the things the show tend to do better, right? They probably would have had rounded walls or something or more alien. And then also what the show did that they don't do here at any point, like when you're on the TARDIS, you're at, you have that background hum, which you remember in the very first, mm. the pilot episode, they way overdid and you could barely hear anything else. But <laughs> in addition, well, yeah, to, they had some horrible noise going on. In yeah. In addition episode. to making it a little more ship like in terms of the walls, if you just had some kind of background noise, cause you know, if you're on a ship or an electronic, there's always going to be some kind of background noise. And when you don't have oh, that, sure. it just feels like when you say, "Oh, well, you're just sitting in a room somewhere." It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like you're on a spaceship. You know, the closest I think I've ever been to being on a big, powerful spaceship, as far as atmosphere was, is uh, there are tunnels under Niagara Falls that mm. you can visit as a tourist, and you hear that rumble of the falls, mm. but you're just in this little corridor that looks like it could be uh you know like some you know military facility <laughs> or something but you hear that in the background and it was it was really impressive well i didn't know about those tunnels but yeah that's a good example yeah <laughs> so having realized that the spaceship has landed lillian and tom start looking for a way out and they see Daleks around, so they decide the obvious thing to do, as we mentioned earlier, is to exit through the, you know, the garbage disposal. And first of all, I was thinking Star Wars, right? Because of course they go down into the. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But instead that was of a uh, wonderful scene, instead of landing in a garbage room, which actually would have made sense, they land on the ground <laughs> outside. So I guess the Daleks are really not, you know, well, you know, not very um, environmentally conscious. They just dump all their garbage outside. Although apparently, you know, they airplanes are. do that too. Like when you flush the toilet, that's what happens. <laughs> all right. Well, Star Destroyers do that too. You know, the Millennium Falcon hid in a field of garbage. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you have an, that note about not having been chopped up by blades, which I, mentioned earlier and i swear i did not read your notes before <laughs> we start we just uh great minds think alike that's all <laughs> so fortunately they didn't get chopped up and they just dropped out of the spaceship and find themselves at the entrance to the mine and we see lots of slaves and robomen and daleks and you know this is one of the things where the movie can do better than the show because they can just play and hire more people to be hanging around right so it looks a little more oh yeah populated and then a normal human guy confronts them and, you know, he's one of the workers here and he, he's not stupid. He immediately figures out, first of all, these two have clean clothes, so they must not have been around here long. You know? And uh, he realizes they must have escaped from the spaceship that just landed. So he puts it all together. Mm -hmm. And as he's talking to them, a rover man approaches. So he puts them to work and sort of hands them some tools so that they won't get caught. 
But the Roboman is not fooled and confronts them. And Tom just, you know, picks up a shovel and knocks the guy out or kills him, I guess. I think he kills him from mm-hmm. what we can tell. And, you know, the the worker guy is mad at him because he's like, look, they're going to figure out he's missing. I think they don't say this in the movie, but in the TV show, there was a radio connection. So they could immediately yeah. tell if a Roboman was killed. Well, th- they did... When they found the helmet in the warehouse, they no- they were noticing that there was a radio attached to it. Right. Um, but, you know, to expect people to remember that detail. Or even understand what that would mean at of, this point and all that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they show the dead guy under a tarp, and he tells them to hide in a nearby tool shed until he can get back to them with some food later. The set design here is not bad, like the tool shed and stuff like that. I mean, it's not fancy, it's just, uh, but it's convincing. You're like, yeah, this this could be an old mine. Yeah, <laughs> I think, but a complaint I have, you know, I'm going to have my conclusion, but I'll say here is that, like, like I said up front, right, they, just like the show, they did all of this outdoor stuff, but it doesn't make it feel like a science fiction story to me, right? They're just in the woods somewhere. And the thing I think they really lose from the show is, that, again, they don't have the Daleks in Trafalgar Square and, you know, near the Capitol and, you know, the, you know, mm, et cetera, yeah. like, which was really dramatic. And if you remember, they, they were pushing the guy in the wheelchair with his drums going on while the Daleks were after them. And it was, it was like, clearly the Daleks had taken over London, right? It was really dramatic. And all mm. we get with the outside stuff here is, oh, here's a shed. Here's some trees. You know, it doesn't feel like oh, the Daleks have taken over London. It's like the Daleks have taken over a tiny little village in the woods somewhere. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, we—I I think at this point it's well established that the world is devastated. I mean, yeah. you know, they. So I can't complain too much about that. Um, well, I miss point. those things. I like those things from the show, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it, all the the British landmarks would have been nice if they had deigned to include them. But, yeah, but they didn't, so we got to suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> so while they're stuck in this shed, uh, Susan and Wyler are making their way through the forest, and Wyler now, just like the doctor did, realizes they can't go to Watford due to the Daleks. But Susan sees a cottage nearby. And they head there. And just like in the show, this just feels to me, it's very Shakespearean, right? Because we have these two women who mm-hmm. are in this cottage in the middle of a forest. So it's very much like kind of the evil witches or something from, you know, Macbeth or, oh, yeah. or whatever. Gingerbread house. Or yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting here is this completely follows what happened in the show, but the actors treat it very differently. And they have a couple different lines that totally change just how the actors are. So we have two, you know, as we did in the show, we have two women, one's an old woman, one's a younger woman, although she's not as young as the woman in the show was. And they live by mending the clothes of the miners. So the Daleks leave them alone and actually bring them food because, you know, they take care of the miners clothes. And Susan and Wyler want, you know, to rest and have some food. And at first, you know, the old woman's like, no, we're not giving you any food. And is very resistant, but it kind of gives in eventually and gives them some soup. Now, the first difference here is that in the show, the old woman was really pretty evil. And here she's really just kind of tired and worn out. You know, she's not so evil. In the show, the young woman was much more nice and wanting to help out these people and kind of, 
doing the bad stuff she does because the old woman makes her do it. In the movie, the young woman, as we'll see, is really the evil one. I mean, she's... Yeah, I... I, I didn't remember the relative characters of the, I mean, I remembered the, the general situation very well. In fact, I, I was surprised that I, I had figured that was one of the things they were going to just mm-hmm. pass over for their own, you know, movie making purposes. But, uh, uh, it ended up that they included it, which I was glad to see, but I didn't remember the old woman being the especially nasty one. Um, but I will say that the young woman is a real, uh, well, rhymes with witch. As they say, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they're skeptical, but they allow Susan and Wilder to come in. And so I said, eventually they give a bit of soup. And then the young woman goes out to deliver clothes, but just as in the show, in reality, what she's doing is she's reporting them to the Daleks and she comes back. So Susan and Wyler are sleeping and the young woman comes back with a big bag of food. You know, they've gotten extra food because of this. And they're sort of talking about uh, what they've done. And Wyler wakes up and overhears them until he wakes up Susan so they can escape. But when they try to escape, guess what? A Dalek is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here's where we find the young woman is really the evilest one, I would argue, because as the Dalek takes them away, she just smirks and says, well, they wanted to go to the mine anyway. And then she laughs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Nasty young lady. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, as this was happening, we've been cutting back and forth to the doctor and David making their way toward the mine. And they debate what the Daleks are after. Is it minerals? Is it oil? And the doctor's like, well, if this were Texas, it might be oil. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> he's sure it's something more serious. And, this, and the mine is the entire purpose of the Dalek in, invading Earth. And while they're talking about this, a man in a nice overcoat appears and puts a knife to the doctor's throat. And he mm-hmm. then gets the David to hand over his rifle. I don't remember this guy being so well-dressed in the show. No, and I felt like I, I thought the guy in the show did this better. But, you know, watching it a second time, I think this guy did a pretty good job. So it's not as big a difference oh, as I was thinking. Oh, yeah, this, this guy comes across really uh, as he should, I yeah. think, uh, you know, for the character. So yeah, as we'll I see, was this happy one, with him. I this just, is who I refer to I as the capitalist, overcoat. right? You know, he's he's going <laughs> to make a profit in, <laughs> in bad times. and The cartoon capitalist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts a knife to the doctor's throat, gets the rifle, and but he'd overheard that they wanted to go to the mine. And he's like, well, most people want to get out of the mine. So <laughs> why do you want to go into the mine? And it turns out he's bringing food to sell to the miners. And, you know, David especially is offended that he's engaging in capitalism. How dare he sell food to these people? (laughs) He should just give it to them for free. I'm not quite sure how he's then supposed to procure it for free. But again, (laughs) we may have a little bit of economic system uh, debate there. (laughs) Um, So he says, well, look, I know the only safe way into the mine. Since I'm going there anyway, and you're, you want to go there, you can come with me. But I'm taking this rifle as my fee. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, uh, and he doesn't say, uh, if you'll give me that rifle, you can come with me. He says, I'm taking this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he says, you know, they have to wait overnight until the early shift in the morning when they can sneak in. So meanwhile, they stay in a nearby cave. Tom and Lillian are in their shed, and they also realize they have to wait until morning. 
until they can leave it. In the morning, the capitalist has been outside the cave making himself breakfast. And when David reaches for a can of beans that are sitting there warmed up, the capitalist kicks it over and spills them so that he can't have them. Now, see, you're you're baffling me here because uh, you know you are you are playing into every stereotype <laughs> of evil capitalists, and I, I did not think that was something you. Well, would I'm just observing, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, the guy I, I, wants I some beans, but apparently because he didn't pay for them, you know, <laughs> he's just going to knock them over. <laughs> But yeah, he is a real jerk about that. He's like, uh, yeah, the one guy says, uh, oh, these those smell good. And he's like, they do, don't they? And then, <laughs> then, then he kicks it over. <laughs> so what a jerk. Then uh, he leads, you know, good coincidence for the show. He leads them to the same shed where Tom and Lillian are hiding, along with some other workers join them. Again, casting-wise, this is one of those things I always like about British stuff. Like, a lot of these workers, anything we see, these are like 40-something guys with, you know, balding heads and everything. They're not 20-something, you know, models. You know, I, I always like that about British TV, especially classic oh, yeah. British TV. In fact, I specifically noted uh, in one of the later scenes when they're all running out of the mine that, there's no young people around. I mean, not just not just college coeds, but like there's no kids. There's no nobody who looks like they're under like thirty or so. Um, so uh, you know, it made me wonder briefly: Did the Daleks just slaughter them all, or did they just decide? Is it like with video games where you don't put kids in so the kids can't get killed? Right. You know that kind of thing. That's probably what it was. They don't want. You to see kids getting fire extinguished right. by the dollar. Now, one thing we've been missing in all this, and it's probably in the movie's favor, but still it's kind of too bad. There's no plant monster. Do you remember that plant monster? For yes, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to bring that up uh, because I was disappointed by that. It was called, I actually looked it up. It was called the Slither. I had, I had thought it was called the Stalker, and I had to do some additional research to determine it was the Slither. Um, and yeah, he's, he's nowhere to be found. And I, I mean, it was a goofy looking monster that had no point aside from popping up in one or two scenes to cause havoc. But, uh, but I thought, well, I want to see how they're going to do this. They made <laughs> yep. a nice saucer. Maybe they'll make a cool monster too, but yep. nope, there's no monster. <laughs> so, um, the, the worker that we haven't met before has, brought rings and personal effects to trade for food with the capitalists. So he's, you know, you know, fingering through them and he's disappointed that it's not as uh, a good a haul as he wanted, but he agrees to give them food. So he's got a, you know, a slightly good heart in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. If, if he was a mobster, he'd say you're light this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The worker guy explains <laughs> the Daleks awesome plan. The one that, you know, you're a big fan of. <laughs> Just how the Daleks are going to hollow out the core of the Earth and use the planet as a giant spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they've actually elaborated on it. I, I may be getting a little ahead here, but they're actually going to uh, move the planet back next to Scaro, is it? The planet they're from? Scalo, Scaro, whatever planet, planet the Daleks originally from. They're going to, like, put the Earth right near its orbit, and that's going to be their new home. It's going to be like the Ark for them. Whereas in the show, as I remember it, 
um, they were just going to tool around the universe, you know, just like the Death Star, going to random places and having fun with it. So I didn't catch that change. That's a, that's a good catch. Uh, he does go through this long explanation of how they found the Daleks have found a fracture in the Earth. So what they're going to do, and he says this is just like diamond, uh, people who do diamonds or something. And I, I don't know what he's talking about there, but he says. Um, they're going to use this fracture so they can blow the Earth's core out of the fracture toward the sun. That's how they're going to get rid of the core. <laughs> now, I, you know, I'm not a physicist or anything. I kind of suspect that getting rid of the Earth's core might have some uh, undesirable effects, even for the Daleks. But that's, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, you'd probably lose a, a bit of the atmosphere and you know gravity or water, <laughs> various things. <laughs> yeah, that too. So, uh, and actually, I don't know if you get rid of the magnetic core, um, you know, what, what other effects that has, who knows, but I'm sure they've worked it all out. They've got, you know, the Daleks have their scientists and all that. So, oh yeah. The doctor uh, asked now for a plan of the mind's workings and, uh, now the, the capitalist guy, just to make him more evil, he's smoking. <laughs> he says he can get the plans. And in the Dalek Command Center uh, that's at the mine, a Dalek reports that the planet's inner core has been penetrated so they can start preparing their explosive. Now, this command center is really interesting because they, unlike what we've seen on the spaceship where, you know, walls are not necessarily rounded and, and all that, the command center is designed around the Daleks, right? They have this... Um, path this kind of corkscrew path through the center of the room so that they can go up and down you know without stairs or anything and it makes sense for the daleks i really was impressed by the performers inside the daleks because they were having to essentially go on this like roller coaster ride where they're having to ride a little bicycle and go around this thing but not just that like point the, you know, the eye stock at something. And if they were talking while they did it, they had to like activate the lights because that's all done by the performer inside the the Dalek. So I was impressed that nobody apparently fell over and broke their neck while they were doing this. (laughs) Yeah, although if they had, they wouldn't have put that in the movie. Yeah. Well, my understanding is uh, (laughs) I think that the the ethos is that if a stuntman dies, um, you should you're supposed to use the cut, you know, if you can. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, I think this happened. Well, that, that makes sense, sort of a tribute, a recognition of their sacrifice. Yeah, and I think it happened in one of the uh, Mad Max films. Uh, there was a guy who died. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I think, and, yeah. and I may be misremembering this, but there's a shot which you probably remember is pretty dramatic, where he's like reaching out to a tire to with something on his arm that's supposed to puncture the tire or something. And I think he got pulled under the tire and they actually used uh, the shot. But uh, again, I, I may be totally no wrong about that. That's just the way yeah. I remember it. Um, well, I guess, I guess if I, if I had been doing the stunt and died that way, that would be, uh, I yeah. would not want it to go to waste. <laughs> sure. But I wanted to say something about this room mm-hmm. because it reminded me of a movie I've seen a lot, though it's been some years since I saw it last, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, a long time ago, yeah. And we, talk, we talked about it in some previous one because I got a clip from it, but yeah. No, okay. Well, there's there's a big green painted room in there, and this room is painted green. 
And it has, as I remember it, it has ramps going up and it has like a ledge going around the backside of it. And then down in the the lower level is a vault where Eddie is kept frozen. Uh, but but anyway, it's uh, this room reminded me of the room in Frank Enferder's castle <laughs> in Rocky Horror Picture Show. That, and I don't know, it's probably a stretch to say that this might have influenced that. But then again... <laughs> The very first song in Rocky Horror, well, this, the credit song is all about classic science fiction movies. So <laughs> it's not too much of a stress to think that that might have influenced the set in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep. There's another thing I actually like here, which is, you know, they start deploying their bomb. And I don't remember what it looked like in the TV show, but I don't think it was impressive. This is actually pretty good. It's this um, red, very red uh, kind of like a pear almost down, uh, you know, upside down. Mm -hmm. And it does. I mean, I think, you know, it looks like what little boy, I looked up what was the name of the bomb for Hiroshima. Yeah, <laughs> it was like fat man and little yeah. boy or something. Like yeah, that. exactly. So it, it, it does feel like it's that kind of thing and it's coming out and they've yeah. got, you know, it, they've got this rail system that's bringing it out so you can drop it down into the mine. Meanwhile, the doctor now has the mine plans and he realizes what he wants to do. So he realizes that, you know, there's these different old corridors from older mines and stuff. And if they can, uh, what he's, you know, the older mines lead to the magnetic core of the earth. They kind of imply that there's like two different cores. There's a magnetic core and a non-magnetic core. And. Hmm. Well, I think the core would be, the core would be the center of the earth, but then the magnetic would be like what what creates the earth's magnetic yeah pole. which which might not be totally inaccurate i don't know yeah i don't but what he realizes is if they can redirect the bomb so that instead of going to the you know true core of the earth it's redirected to the magnetic core what that will do is it will expose the daleks to the magnetism and that will destroy them but the earth won't be destroyed although I will say that due to a story I was writing at one point a few years back, I know that in the 1960s, the Earth's magnetic north pole was around somewhere in Canada. So that bomb would have had a long way to travel <laughs> in a short time. But the one thing I'll give no the well. movie is that they actually explain... The whole, the end of the movie here explains things much more than the TV show did, right? So the whole magnetic core idea and all this um, makes a lot more sense than whatever it is we were doing in the TV show. <laughs> and we also get some fun results from the magnetic stuff. Oh, yeah. As they figure out, you know, who's going to do what so they can, you know, redirect the bomb. The capitalist guy sees no profit in this, so he leaves. <laughs> he's not interested <laughs> in helping if he's not going to get paid. And I'm sure we won't see him again. Yeah. And this, remember, in the TV show, he got eaten by the Slither. Mm. He was, you know, yeah, not I eaten, didn't but he that. got killed okay. by okay. it, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he, uh, this is all new territory. The magnetic pole, the the continuing presence of the smuggler, all this stuff is, uh, they, they, really, they really went off course in this <laughs> second half of the movie. So the doctor tells uh, the rest of them that he and Lillian and Dave will create a diversion while they do what they need to do. And they want to know what the diversion will be. And he says, well, you'll, you know, when it happens, you'll know what it is, um, which is right out of the TV show as well. 
but he says, whenever the diversion happens, all the humans need to get away as soon as possible. And then instead of it being the three of them, the doctor tells David to get Lillian to somewhere safe to ensure that she does nothing useful in this story. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but it's not Lillian. It's, um, would it be Louise? I thought it was Lillian. Maybe it's Louise. It doesn't matter. She doesn't do no, anything. Uh, yeah, Lillian was from the show, I think. No, that's and, what, and because Louise... it was Barbara. I mean, this is the Barbara character. Uh, anyway. Okay, um, well, the Barbara character is Louise. Is it Louise? Yeah. Okay, I Lillian, switched it to Lillian. I think was. <laughs> I switched it to Lillian in here somewhere if it was Louise. So it, it doesn't yeah, matter. They're, they're playing their Whichever mind name she uses, she does absolutely nothing in this movie. So <laughs> <laughs> you're not missing anything. So the worker guy and Tom make their way through the mine. And one of the things I'll say, and maybe I just missed them, but we have a lot of characters in here that never get named. <laughs> so that's why I'd say like the worker and the new guy or whatever, because they just never do. Oh, yeah. Or even the capitalist guy, they I, never give him a name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of names I didn't catch. Well, most of my notes for the first, first half of the first half, even even David and Dortmund, I was like uh, the wheelchair guy and the <laughs> denim guy. <laughs> yeah, and that'll be part of my commentary as we get here. Okay, uh, so the worker guy and Tom make their way through the mine. They're avoiding the Robomen, and eventually they see someone. They say, "Oh, that's Craddock," and it's confusing the times. So like, Who's Craddock? We've never even heard of this guy. Well, this is that callback I mentioned earlier. He was the guy who got robotized when when the doctor and the other guy got released um, before they got robotized. Yeah. But I don't think okay. they ever named him. You know, this is one of those just like script oversights, right? Because the TV show, there's a whole thread with him. But in the movie, they just assume we're going to know who he is. And yeah. and it's it's possible they did name him. But with something like this, especially when you have a whole panoply of characters involved, you really got to pound it into the audience's yep. head so that they're going to catch it. Yeah, if they named stick. him, it was like one sentence, you know, a half hour, an hour ago in the film, right? So yeah. So anyway, actually, this makes no logical sense, but it's film sense, right? When they see him, he doesn't have his helmet on. That's how he knows he's, they know he's Craddock. Then he mm. puts his helmet on, right? And, which is, but yeah. it is sort of sinister when he does it, but it makes no sense whatsoever. The robo men always wear their helmets. So they only did this so that they could recognize him. And they assume that he's still a friend, but guess what? You know, as we know from earlier, he was <laughs> robotized. So he's not a friend. So Craddock and the, the worker guy fight, and both of them are killed by falling down the mine shaft. And we referenced earlier. So in the movie, this has no meaning whatsoever, but in the TV show, those two were brothers. So, you know, this guy was seeing his brother having been turned into a zombie, and then they fight and, and, and kill each other. Um, yeah, the guy, I mean, the guy actually made the conscious choice to try and redeem his brother. He's like, hey, it's don't you recognize me? It's your brother Larry, or whatever. And, and yeah, here it's just, they fight, and mm. they both die. <laughs> and meanwhile, Tom climbs up the mine shaft using some wooden supports there. It's a very primitive mine. It's also about two feet across for going down to the center of the earth. I just kind of suspect it would need to be a little bit wider, but, you know, okay. Uh, yeah, you'd think. <laughs> and now the capitalist guy returns to the shed where the doctor is alone with the plants. And this guy says he's had an idea to help the doctor if the doctor will follow him. <laughs> it's funny. The doctor asks, is it safe? 
He says, oh, yes, of course. But it gets on as soon as they step outside the shed, there's a bunch of Daleks there. <laughs> Which makes at least the third time they've gone out a door and there's Daleks yeah. there. <laughs> um, you know, and the damn dirty capitalist has sold out the doctor for filthy <laughs> lucre. So <laughs> just what would you expect? <laughs> But the doctor says he expected this. You know, it's like was part of his plan or something. And he walks off with the Dalek following him. And now <laughs> the capitalist gloats to the remaining Daleks. There's like 10 of them around him about what he's done. And then he realizes he's that. He's like, oh, I told you. He'd, whatever. Yeah, he was, I told you he'd be here. And then he realizes that, whoops, it doesn't work well to make a deal with the Daleks. And. You know, in his defense, he, he wouldn't have been able to see the Daleks' master plan yet, so he didn't know. <laughs> but, yeah. So he now realized he made a mistake, and he barricades himself inside the wooden shed as if that's going to protect him somehow. He, he could have seen the first Daleks episode where they were going to give food to the Thals, yeah. and uh, they they didn't. <laughs> They're just, they're just dirty dealers. That's all the <laughs> yeah. Daleks are. So, yeah. So, he barricades himself inside the shed, and they use their fire extinguishers, which somehow the fire extinguishers cause it to blast into flaming pieces. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they are powerful weapon. They just look like fire yeah. extinguishers. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom is still making his way up that mine shaft. And in the Dalek control room, it's announced that the rebel leader, who we have to as the doctor, has been captured. <laughs> I mean, he's been here for like 10 minutes. I'm not sure how he became the rebel leader, but it's, I guess it's not too unfair. <laughs> and well, it's just propaganda. You know, whoever they capture was the rebel leader. Right. We talked earlier about the whole corkscrew round, but here's now where we get this really extended shot of a Dalek going down this, you know, from the very top of this ramp all the way down to the bottom. I just feel like they were like, we did all this. We're going to show it to you <laughs> for the next 30 seconds. <laughs> um, and finally, he gets to the bottom and, you know, pushes some buttons or whatever. And now the bomb is being put into position over the mine shaft. Actually, we kind of saw them already doing this. So they actually like moved the bomb back and and brought it forward again so that we could see it coming. <laughs> and Weiler and Susan and other humans are being escorted by Daleks. And, and this is a really weird thing, right? Because they're prisoners being escorted by Daleks. And then they run across the doctor coming in the opposite direction. And the Daleks and the prisoners all leave and leave them alone. <laughs> I will let you guys talk. It's just really weird. <laughs> and Weiler asks reasonably why the Daleks are using human hands to dig out this mine when a drill would be much more efficient. So this is one of the things where I feel like they wanted to improve on the TV show because, you know, they never talked about any of this, the TV show. Mm. But then, before you can get an answer, a Dalek shows up and moves them along into the control room. And the doctor examines the equipment and then looks into the mine shaft and he sees Tom standing there. <laughs> he's gotten all the way up to the top. The Daleks inform the doctor that as the rebel leader, he's going to be exterminated. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's one of those funny things, right? I mean, if you're like a side character, they would just exterminate you in a second. But if you're a main character, they're just going to keep telling you how they're going to exterminate you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> But the doctor says he knows their weakness. <laughs> they are, this is a very Dalek response. Right? The Daleks have no weakness. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, then why are you afraid to dick your own mind? You know, following up on what Weiler said there. 
And he points out they're afraid of the magnetism, so they can't go down into the mine because, you know, the magnetism will screw them up. And they know that humans aren't affected by magnetism, so that's why they're having the humans do it. So here we have an actual explanation for all this that didn't exist in the TV show. And uh, the doctor also points out, you know, it seems to, well, he does have a reason. I was going to say he shouldn't be telling them this. The doctor also points out that if there's only one mistake, if the bomb goes to the wrong place, it'll release the magnetism and destroy the Daleks. What he's really doing is he's telling Tom this so that Tom knows what he needs to do. Mm, yeah. And Tom hears it and immediately understands, and he starts going back down the mine shaft. And the Daleks decide to exterminate the Doctor again. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> These are, you know, they've destroyed planets and galaxies and all this. And he says, look over there. And then he runs away. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, these, yeah, they're not that impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the oldest trick in the book for a reason, I guess. (laughs) I mean, it would have only been better if he'd said squirrel. (laughs) 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 And he now runs to a microphone and gives a command to all the Robomen to attack Daleks. And he says, this order cannot be countermanded. And... (laughs) It, this just really was one of those things where I'm like, oh, wow, it was so much better in the TV show. Because remember, this was Barbara doing this. And also, the other thing we don't get in the movie was this brilliant scene where Barbara is, she says she has these, you know, secrets to tell the Daleks. And then she spends all this time, you know, using historical events to confuse them, where she's like, oh, you know, this guy, uh, I'm even forgetting who they are, you know, uh, um, oh, what's his name? The um, I think she brought in Abraham Lincoln somewhere. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln. Who is the <laughs> elephant guy? Who um, Hannibal. Yeah, she's like, oh, Hannibal is coming over from the north, and Abraham Lincoln's doing this right. And so she, <laughs> she takes all these real historical events and treats them as if they're current and confuses the Daleks with them. And I love that scene because she's a historian, and she is using her wits to confuse the Daleks and, and delay things. And it's a really good scene. And it's just not here. You know, <laughs> not only is the Barbara yeah. character not here or Laura or Lillian or whoever she is, but it's, you know, it's just, oh, we just don't have any of that. And it's too bad. <laughs> and now that the doctor has given his commands that the Robomen should attack the Daleks, the first thing that Robomen do, and again, it's just very film thing. They all take off their Robomen helmets and, there's no reason to do that, I think, except that the show is trying to say, oh, now these are not Robomen anymore or something. But <laughs> So they take off their helmets and they attack the Daleks. And it turned out that all along the power was within all of us. You know, <laughs> we'd just, just been willing to use it. And there's a massive battle. And, you know, we do see this battle inside and outside and all over. And some pretty, uh, pretty fun things of, you know, Daleks being torn apart and thrown around and, and all that. What? But then, you know, the Daleks seem to get the upper hand and they announce that the robo-rebellion has been defeated. There are just a few Daleks left in the control room, a whole bunch of dead robo-men and the doctor and company kind of cowering in the corner. And the Daleks now, I don't know what it is. They set a thing called a rel counter. It's like it's like a Geiger (laughs) counter or something, but it's a timer. It's just a clock, right? Um, Yeah, it's it turns out rels are... Pretty close to seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're setting this rel counter. All the Daleks are ordered to destroy the resistance while they await the explosion, which will happen at 50 rels. 
And when we get to 40 rails, all the dollars need to get into the spaceship. So however long a rail is, they only have about 10 rails to stop attacking people and get into the spaceship. So I hope they're close by the, the <laughs> ramp. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, Tom has gone down. He's found the other shaft that the doctor had seen on the map. And he pulls apart some boards to block the shaft and redirect the bomb. And uh, then we see the bomb drop down the shaft. And this is actually really well done. You know, I assume some of these were models and stuff, but... Uh, you know, it all works pretty well. But, of course, the bomb get you know, hits the boards that he'd placed and, and is redirected to the magnetic core. And meanwhile, Tom and everyone else find... Over their, in Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, Tom and everyone else find their way out of the mine. And then the bomb blows. But the Dalek in the control center is confused because, you know, it exploded in the wrong place. And he realized everything's starting to blow up and he realizes there's a problem. And he starts, you know, classic Dalek thing, abandon mine area, abandon mine area. And they're all spinning around trying to get out. But the problem is this magnetism is pulling them around. <laughs> this is pretty funny. They, they do a good job of this, right? <laughs> These Daleks are trying to get away, but the magnetism pulls and they will go smashing through walls and... <laughs> Um, oh yeah, it's it's similar to the scene in the first movie where they took a rope and and used it to slingshot a dolly right. back into an elevator shaft. It's a uh, uh, yeah, they got a couple of little amusing things. Yeah, here. none of this is in the show, and so I will give the movie credit that the whole magnetism thing in the in the ending third, you know, they really made a better plot point and it, it paid off in all this way of the Daleks being well, turned around by magnetism and everything. It, it's a plot point that makes for some fun visual gags, but uh, as far as a plausible plot point, well, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, that's your little hang-up. <laughs> <laughs> so the humans get out of the mine and the Daleks, the remaining Daleks manage to take off in the spaceship. And this is actually really satisfying because as you're watching, you're thinking, well, there's all this magnetism. Will the spaceship get pulled into it? And then you, you watch the spaceship start to take off, but then, yes, it's getting pulled toward the mine. <laughs> and again, they do a really good job here because it looks like it really is going toward that mine area we've been seeing and it's when the spaceship like uh, runs into a column that was there that you see that it's a that it's a model right but the model looked mm -hmm. close enough to the actual filmed thing earlier that until the spaceship hits the model and you can see that the sizes aren't correct and all that it actually looks pretty good mm -hmm. yeah it's a, it's a pretty good miniature yeah and so you know once it destroys the miniature, uh, you know, the Daleks are over. <laughs> the doctor tells the humans that the Daleks will never invade again as the answer to their destruction lies beneath the humans' feet. It turns out the doctor also hasn't seen the Daleks' master plan. Uh, <laughs> and I literally wrote in my notes the second time I watched it, the end of the movie, because I'd forgot. <laughs> this is not quite the Because ah. it's the natural end of the movie, right? They oh, killed yeah. the Daleks. They're all walking off. And just that, no, we have a whole other sequence. <laughs> so they return Tom to his time. But like two minutes before the jewelry store robbery that started the movie. Yeah, Tom has made a deal with the doctor. Yeah, and, and in the movie, the doctor can actually control the TARDIS, you know, which he can't in the tv show mm -hmm. and so tom goes out in his police uniform and 
he finds the driver, you know, the getaway driver, and he knocks him out and takes his place. This is actually a little bit clever, right? Because he takes his place. So then the storefront explodes, although I would have thought he might have wanted to stop the storefront from exploding. But <laughs> um, <laughs> The bad guys run out. They get into the car because, of course, they don't realize that it's not their driver. He then knocks them out in that, you know, classic uh, TV and movie thing where he just has to hit them once on the head and they're knocked out. And he drives him to the police station, confident that he's getting a promotion, presumably paying no attention to the block burning down behind him because of the explosion that he allowed to occur. <laughs> and now we get the actual end of the movie, uh, except for we do have a shot yeah. of the TARDIS crew waving to him as he drives by with the, the bad guys in his car. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, this... This is one of the things that annoyed me most about the movie because so far, whatever its failings, so far in what we've watched, which is two and a half seasons thereabouts, the series has been consistent in never creating a time paradox. Mm. And you know, the doctor has been vocal about the fact that you can't create a time paradox. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And here, uh, he just says, hey, Doc, take me back a couple minutes early so I can create a time paradox. Yep. So, yeah, that, that I mean, I'm not even, I'm not emotionally invested in Doctor Who the way that you are. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've only seen this two and a half seasons, and I've, I've enjoyed it. I certainly love William Hartnell. He's, he's mm -hmm. become near and dear to me. You know, the show overall, it's fun to watch. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite pieces <laughs> of media of all time. But uh but you know, I so far at least it's playing by its own rules mostly, and the time paradox rule is one that they haven't ever violated that I can recall so far. Um I mean yeah, there is some ambiguity about some places where they might have changed time. I don't remember all the details, but but basically, yeah, basically you can't change time in the show so far. But here it's just, yeah, why not? We'll go back a couple minutes early, you know, create a paradox. So he's driving off in a car instead of getting into the TARDIS in the first place. Right. And I, I don't know. It, it just, it doesn't sit right with me. That's all. So responding in general, I mean, I my overall feeling, I mentioned this before, is that, so first of all, I will say, I mean, the first movie was an embarrassment, although it's almost more fun to do as a <laughs> podcast, right? Because there's more to make fun of. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to be, you know, mean. Right. And this <laughs> I, I is, like that. you know, this removes a lot of the embarrassing stuff. Even, you know, Peter Kushner's, uh, portrayal or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter Cushing's <laughs> portrayal is not nearly as childishly silly as it was in the first one, right? I mean, the first one is literally like mm -hmm. moving around on his legs like he's some, you know, weird character or whatever. And we don't have any of that in this. He's a much more adult character in this one. Yeah, he wasn't, he was more sort of frail and shambling in the first one in some of the scenes. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the number one thing I just come back to is no, there's no character who stands out. There's no arc who stands out. I mean, the doctor plays an important point at the end in a couple of points, but you know, let's look at all the crew, right? Laura, Lillian, whoever mm -hmm. the hell she is, 
absolutely nothing. Does <laughs> does nothing in this story. Louise. Louise. You know, I can't even I can't even get it right trying to and you know, Barbara was so important in this story that that's just weird, oh, right? Yeah. And and she's playing mm-hmm. the Barbara character. Um the girl who was the best actor in the first one and the most compelling person, nothing. She does nothing in this. Um yeah. You know, Tom, as we said, is really the character, right? I mean, he drives it the most and does the most. Uh, he doesn't have that much of a personality. He does, you know, we don't get to see him develop the way we saw Ian. He doesn't really kind of have that moral center that, that Ian had. But he certainly, you know, as I said, if I think if he had played Ian in the first movie, it would have been much better if, if he had been playing this character rather than the silly Ian that they created. Um, yeah, he he's, he comes across as kind of a, you know, maybe maybe not exceptional in many ways, but uh, but a solid guy. You know, yeah. he's 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 a good cop. I'd like to have him on the beat in my <laughs> neighborhood. Right. So there's just so it's just just what I would almost call a distributed movie. Like there's no major characters. There's no one who stands out. There's you know, it's just kind of weird in that way. Um, and because you don't have all the episodes you did of the show, some of the characters who could develop their character in the show can't do it here. You know, so I don't know. It did, to me, it just feels like kind of a smorgasbord. Like, it's not embarrassing like the first movie. There's some intense moments that are better handled. They certainly do some plot things better at the end. But I would still, I mean, you know, we come to that worth watching thing, right? I would say watch the TV show version of this because even though, of course, you have all the padding of a Doctor Who story with a lot of episodes, there's so much more in there, especially Barbara, uh, that to get out of it that you just don't get in this movie. So that's kind of where yeah, I, where I, I mean, yeah, it's um, and you know, I think uh, I think I may have actually been less overall impressed with this movie than you were uh i i I saw it as being about on the same level as the first Mm. one now part of that is that we have the established show and characters and story and um you know there were just various arbitrary changes made in both movies you know peter cushing i like him of course he goes on to become one of the most memorable sinister (laughs) movie villains Mm. You know, um, but uh, he's he's not well used in either of these movies, I don't think. Uh, and I did love a few of the production design decisions in this movie. I really liked. I complained a lot about the first movie uh, <laughs> that the production design was often worse <laughs> than the some TV show. To the wall, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in this one, we got some good matte paintings. Mm-hmm. We got a what I thought was a really cool looking saucer design. You know, you mentioned the bomb looked good. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, there, there, and, and set design aside, you know, Susan is a charismatic, uh, young actress who didn't get utilized for the show as much as she could have been. Uh, and yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of squandered potential, uh, throughout this movie, I think. And it's just, um, yeah. yeah, I'd say the only reason to watch this movie is 
if you want to see a cool flying saucer or <laughs> you're just such a big Doctor Who fan that you, you want to compare it to the show. Right. But if you got to choose one or the other, watch the show. Yeah, and I guess I just come back to if they dropped like three storylines and then just chose a couple of things to actually focus on, right? Have an actual character, have some actual arcs. But mm-hmm. yeah, everything's just sort of there and shallow because they're you know, juggling all these different things, but not quite delving into them. And like I said, it's a real shame not to have like that woman who was the, you know, fighting with Barbara about what it was to be a rebel and everything. I mean, that was, you know, we just don't have anything like that. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, we didn't have the conflict between the brother trying Mm -hmm. to save his robo brother and all that. And um, it, it occurs to me looking back at it, that really, one of the most interesting characters in this was the smuggler, mm-hmm. um, who was mostly uh, just sort of there in the TV show. I mean, he, uh, he, I might think more of him if I went back and watched it again, but he didn't really make a huge impression on me in the show. But this guy, he's really, mm-hmm. really a sleazeball. You know, I don't even I, remember I, in the uh, show he, if he sold them out in the end or not. I don't, I don't remember what happened. Well, no, he got killed by the slither right. before he ever got a right. chance to so sell Maybe he would have, but uh, yeah. No, this guy's a but, pretty but this bad guy, piece of work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of untapped potential among the actors in this movie, uh, uh, which is, it's, it's kind of a pity, uh, but... What are you going to do? Yep. They they wanted to make some money and capitalize mm-hmm. on the Doctor Who phenomenon. And and the ideal way to do that would be get everyone from the TV show and make a color version of the TV show with some of the fat trimmed off <laughs> it. But, yeah. but they didn't do that, so we got this. And I, did, we, I never mentioned this. I, I do believe that Hartnell was upset not to have been cast in the movies. But it's also... I mean, well, who could blame them? You know, it's just so. First of all, they did have the problem that, of course, they were busy making the show, so it would have been hard to carve out time for them to do a movie. But it's also just a classic in Hollywood and everywhere else. Like, if you take a play or something, you know, like a classic example, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? A great play. They turn it into a movie. Well, Joe Montana created the 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 character, the most dramatic character, Richard Roma for the play and it actually mm. made his career right and and oh really when they did the movie you know they didn't cast him right it's like zero mustel and fiddler on the roof yeah and, uh, it's just really common um it was pacino that they put in the movie because when they do the movie they want it to be successful so they're going to put the biggest movie star they can get into the role sure. it, it doesn't matter to them who originated the character it just happens all the time right but as we talked about yeah. this is this weird reversal where you know, Hartnell's portrayal in the show, as well as the show itself, was was much more sharp-edged and adult and everything. And then they did the mm-hmm. movie, which is normally the adult, you know, the more adult thing. And they toned it down and made it much more childish. And, and, and so it's yeah. just kind of weird. And beside that, Hartnell was already in mass media. Like, like plays... Plays aren't really mass media yeah. unless you can go to Broadway and pay a bunch of money for tickets. Uh, you know, most of us flyover country folks aren't going to know about that. But Doctor Who was an established property, and Hartnell people knew him from television, and that was how it became popular enough to 
justify making a movie out of it. So, yeah, it was kind of a different situation than the play. Yeah. But, yeah. And nonetheless, okay, so I think we come down to not really worth watching. Watch the <laughs> watch the TV version instead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> just put it up has with the monster. Moments. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, the the movie has its moments, uh, like I said, but uh, but in the end, I've had more fun making fun of it than <laughs> I did actually watching it. <laughs> and now, at least in our recording, of course, we'll edit this down. We've gone like an hour longer than the movie. I have no idea. <laughs> I would never have predicted that we would have that much to say about about the movie. So maybe that's in defense of the movie itself. <laughs> Um, maybe, or maybe it's in defense of Will Hartnell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so join us next week when we'll either be doing more Doctor Who or something that's not Doctor Who. We really have no idea right now. <laughs> 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 we will see you then and talk to you later. Take care. The character now I gotta space on all the goddamn names and everything. So let me <laughs> uh, let's see. Shelley Levine. Yeah, well, a, what's his name? Kevin the, Spacey, Ricky Roma. Ricky is Roma. Pacino. Yeah, Pacino. So he was originally played. Uh he's played by the guy who did all the monster ones on The Simpsons and everything. Uh, monster ones on the, the, the mobster guy on The Simpsons. Oh, mobster. Oh, um, Turturro? John Turturro? No, no, no. Uh, Montaigne, John Montaigne. Okay, let's see. So, oh, okay. A classic example of Glenn Clary. <clears throat> you fool! <laughs>